Thank you for joining me again, everyone. And I just want to start this week with a little bit of business. True Crime Fix is now on Patreon. If you would like to know more, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. If you do, you'll be able to get your fix a little bit earlier. Just like Lyman, Jason, Kelly and Alex who have joined since the last episode. Thank you again for your assistance in keeping this podcast going and free for the masses. So that is again www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. And now on to this week's case. Hey, true crime fans, have you listened to Wine and Crime yet? We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash our worst Minnesotan accents. Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, Crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine, or let's be real, three. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod, and check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. Cheers! Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold. True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Fix Podcast with your host, Steve.
Hi everyone, and welcome to our 15th case together. Please, before we get started, if you've liked the show so far, remember to subscribe on your chosen podcast directory, and the new episodes will download automatically for you upon release. This is the second case written by my wife. I think she's kind of getting the hang of it now, and this case is one that's quite well known. A slight disclaimer at the start. This is the first case that I have covered, which involves a young child, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. I'm going to be open and honest with you. This story has been a hard one to learn about, so I hope that you can feel the emotion that I have felt whilst working on this. When doing these cases, I always focus on the victim. However, this case, there's more than one person that's been affected by this crime. My wife and I are not yet parents, and one day we hope to be. But I cannot begin to appreciate or understand the strength of these parents. Losing your son at such a young age, and doing everything you can to catch the killer. Even to the point of going on national TV to make an appeal to the better nature of the parents of the person that has ruined your life. Ultimately in this case, another parent makes a stand sacrificing her own son's freedom to do what is right for him and our victim. As with some stories I cover, the suspect is revealed pretty early on. On the other hand, this case does show how willing some people are to make families suffer. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is your True Crime Fix. I am your host Steve, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of Rhys Jones. Rhys Milford Jones was born on the 27th of September 1995. He was the son of Father Stephen Jones and mother Melanie Jones. He had an older brother named Owen, who was born in 1990. Reese was an affectionate child, and his mother would say he was a mummy's boy at heart. Reese's head teacher and neighbours all report that Reese was a friendly child and very popular with a passion for football. Reese supported Everton and was an all-round football fan living in different football shirts. Stephen would say that his son would wear shirts until they had worn away. He had a fondness for a giant cuddly gorilla toy on his bed that his parents had been trying to get rid of for ages because he was going to big school now and he was too old for a cuddly gorilla. But he wouldn't let it go. He'd had it for so long he wouldn't let them throw it out and it still sat on his bed. He also had an obsession with using rolled up socks as footballs to kick around his bedroom. His parents wondered why they would get odd socks for him in the wash all the time and they eventually found out. They found in his room, on top of the wardrobe, numerous rolled up balls of socks. What would happen was that he would take his socks off when he got home from school, roll them up into a ball and play football in his room. When he kicked them against the wall, they'd end up on top of the wardrobe, and he was too short to reach up and get them down. He would always have a ball at his feet, 
ever since he could walk. The Jones family lived in the suburb of Croxeth on the outskirts of the city of Liverpool. This suburb of Liverpool was not different to any other in the UK. Leafy, green and friendly. A number of famous faces had been born on the estate, such as Geoffrey Hughes, who appeared in British sitcoms such as Keeping Up Appearances and Heartbeat, as well as the former Doctor Who actor Tom Baker and footballer Wayne Rooney. Reese played for the local football club, Fir Tree Boys, who played on the Croxith Park estate behind the Fir Tree pub. Reese was not only talented academically, he was a gifted sportsman. On August the 22nd, 2007, Reese was running late for football practice as he'd been shopping with his mum for a new school uniform so that all of his school stuff would be ready when the new year would begin in 10 days' time. Reese was just five weeks away from turning 12 and had just left Broad Square Primary School and was looking forward to starting secondary school at Fazakali High School in September 2007. Reese was very bright and had just performed brilliantly in his SATs. He was expected to do exceptionally well at secondary school. When Reese arrived at training, he realised that he'd forgotten his signing-on fee. Before his coach could tell him that he could bring it the next week, Reese ran home to get it. When he returned home, his mum gave him the money. Melanie then drove Reese to the training session so he did not miss it. He would normally walk, as it was local to his home, approximately ten minutes' walk from his front door. As they arrived, Melanie kissed her son goodbye, and Reese made a point to say that he would be home in time for the England football match later that night against Germany, which kicked off at 8pm. Melanie watched her son run to the pitch and meet his teammates and friends, before she drove off home. Steve Gagan was the football coach for the Fir Tree Boys. He explained that the team had had a fun session and that after the training had finished, the boys had had a friendly penalty kick competition where the players would take shots against a goalkeeper from the penalty mark. It was just a bit of extra fun, said Steve. The coach decided that he was going to be the last to take a penalty. When Reese, who was on the opposing team, called out and demanded to be in goal. Unfortunately for Reese, despite a valiant effort, Steve scored the winning penalty. The team ran over and all bundled Steve to the ground to celebrate the win. In a tongue-in-cheek simulation of annoyance, Reese threw mud at his teammates and Steve. It was a really good session and a happy atmosphere, recalled Steve. After training, Rhys started his short journey home. Steve wound down his car window and offered him a lift home. However, Rhys was adamant that he wanted to walk home as it was only round the corner. Rhys had taken that journey many times before and the streets were filled with locals going about their daily business. The pub was starting to fill up as the kick-off to the Football International drew nearer. Just as Reese crossed the pub car park, 
a hooded youth dressed in only black and riding a silver bike approached. They took a stance across from the pub. The youth retrieved an item from his pocket and held out the Smith & Wesson handgun at arm's length and opened fire at a group of teenagers firing three shots. The first shot missed everybody and hit a BMW in the car park before clattering into a blue metal bin. The second, however, hit Reese, entering his back just above his left shoulder blade and exiting from the right side of his neck. Even though an innocent boy now lay stricken on the ground, the gunman fired another shot again towards the pub, but missing any target. Reese's football coach Steve was one of the first people at the scene as he was just pulling out of the sports ground. He described seeing Reese slump to the floor and he immediately stopped his car and processed the situation. His son, who was in the front of the car, immediately sprung out of the car in an attempt to help his friend. Steve jumped out of the car to stop him, but it was too late. He recalled seeing Reese in a puddle of his own blood. Steve knew then and there that Reese was dead. The hooded figure had fled the scene on a pushbike. Steve frantically searched his mobile phone to try and find Reese's home number, but he did not have it. He called the assistant coach of the football team, Tony Edge, and shouted at him to go and get Reese's mother, Melanie. Melanie recalled the horror of that day years later. When I arrived, there was nothing that could have prepared me for what had happened and what was there. Hundreds of people and police. It was just horrendous. I just jumped out of the car and there were people in a circle. And when I broke through the circle, Reese was just lying there in a pool of blood. His eyes wide open. I knew he had gone, but I grabbed hold of him and told him to stay with me and that everything would be okay. But it wasn't. Stephen Jones was on his way to work when this occurred. He arrived at the car park just as Reese was being loaded into the ambulance and taken to hospital. Stephen said, I didn't understand how serious the incident was until I walked into the trauma unit of the hospital and Melanie came out of a small side room saying that they couldn't resuscitate Reese. At 8.46pm, Reese Jones was pronounced dead at the city's Alder Hay Children's Hospital. Both of Reese's parents were with him when he passed. Within hours of Reese's death, all of the national press were descending upon Liverpool, another young victim of gun crime on the streets of the United Kingdom. From the start, the police knew that it would be hard to crack this case. The case had to be solved quickly for the peace of mind of both Reese's parents as well as the wider community. Deputy Superintendent Dave Kelly of the Merseyside Police was designated the lead investigator on the case. 
D.S. Kelly understood the enormity of the task. The Joneses' world had been shattered into pieces by the loss of their son, and now the national media attention meant that they would not be given any time to grieve. D.S. Kelly assured Melanie he would find Reese's killer. There was no forensic evidence at the scene, and the bullets that were fired could also not be located despite the swift police response. Early into the investigation, it was discovered that there was CCTV footage of a hooded youth cycling around the local area. Unfortunately, the individual could not be clearly identified due to the poor quality of the CCTV footage. Was this the gunman that the police were looking for? The residents of the suburb of Croxith were not fully aware of the amount of gang-related crime that happened on their streets. The wall of silence that surrounded so many major crimes. Melanie and Stephen took the courage to stand up for their son and go public with an appeal, challenging those who could help solve this crime and reveal the truth to help catch their son's killer. So just a brief bit of background here. Croxith comes under the UK postal code L11, and unfortunately, like a number of other areas within Great Britain, petty rivalries between loose alliances of antisocial teens and young men were terrorising local neighbourhoods. The two gangs within L11 were the Croxith crew and the Strang gang, who were based in neighbouring Norris Green. The issues between the two started in 2004. Danny MacDonald was celebrating the new year in the Royal Oak on Muirhead Avenue on the border of West Derby and Norris Green when a masked gunman entered the pub and repeatedly shot the 20-year-old. A friend of MacDonald was also shot in the attack, which was not solved by the police. During the investigation, two men from Norris Green were amongst those questioned. The death of MacDonald, who was heavily linked to the Croxith crew, sparked a series of attacks. Just 24 hours after the shooting, bullets were fired at a house in Sovereign Road, Croxith, in what was thought to be a revenge attack. Over the next four years, detectives linked 17 shootings and 70 acts of criminal damage to the two gangs, members of which would swagger around housing estates dressed in body armour. Many of the shootings were tit-for-tat, eye-for-eye, damage and injury attacks, but in 2006 the rivalry again left a family faced with the death of a loved one. This time, the victim was a prominent figure in the Strand Gang, Liam Smidger Smith. Smith was just 19. A self-styled leader of the Strang Gang, who liked to star in his own reckless YouTube videos of car racing as well as gun and knife violence, had been gunned down. Smith was shot in the head minutes after a heated argument with a Croxith crew member, Ryan Lloyd, who was in prison at the time. The incident led to Lloyd storming out of the visiting hall and returning to his wing 
where he made a series of furious phone calls to his gang. Within an hour, Smith, who had been visiting a prisoner friend, had been shot by a sawn-off shotgun fired from five yards away as he walked out of the Altcourse prison on the 23rd of August 2006. A 16-year-old boy would later be found guilty of Smith's murder. The murder of Rhys Jones came the day before the first anniversary of the killing of Liam Smith. The trouble between the two factions was rife coming into 2007. Before long, the streets near Reese's home were rich with rumours that the gunman was a notorious 16-year-old male gang member of the Croxith crew. Sean Mercer's name was written in graffiti all over the town, as well as being on a number of social media sites. Sean Mercer was known to the police, however, due to a fear of retribution, local people were reluctant to come forward and provide the police with incriminating evidence. Mercer had been stopped and searched by the police over 80 times and had an antisocial behaviour order granted by the local county court. Mercer was reported to have a fanatical allegiance to the Croxith crew. Just three days after Reese's murder, Sean Mercer was arrested and questioned in relation to the incident. Not that Mercer would do much talking. The only thing that he would say was that he was with his friend and fellow gang member, Dean Kelly, on the night of the killing. Mercer displayed no fear of or respect for the police, as this was not his first time to visit the station. When questioned himself, Dean Kelly vouched for Mercer and was his alibi. In the end, Mercer was released on bail, pending further inquiries, as there was no evidence against him. On the 28th of August, the police again appealed to the public for information, stating that they needed help in finding those who had committed the crime. The murder weapon was described as a black handgun with a long barrel. More than 300 officers and gun crime specialists were deployed in the hunt for the killer. Reese Jones's parents made a fresh appeal for witnesses to come forward on the 19th of September, four weeks after the murder, which was then reconstructed on Crime Watch on the 26th of September. In the episode, Melanie Jones appealed directly to the murderer's mother to turn her son in. It led to 12 people calling into the programme, all of whom gave the police the same name. Croxith Park, where Reese lived, was five miles from the city centre of Liverpool. Even though all of these issues between the two gangs were on their doorstep, Melanie and Steve were unaware of the dangers that were facing the youth of the area. Both Melanie and Steve lived in their home for 17 years before the murder of Reese. They were aware of the gangs, but never had any concern or involvement with them. On the night that Reese was murdered, members of the Strand Gang were seen in the Fir Tree pub, an extreme provocation as this was the territory of the Croxith crew. 
the poisonous atmosphere was made worse with the appearance of Wayne Brady, another Strand Gang member. He had become a hate figure for the Croxith crew by dating a girl from Croxith, a beauty queen called Vicky Smart. The relationship was a very dangerous romance. Both gangs wouldn't have been happy with this relationship. Vicky Smart had been terrorised having her windows shot at and had been threatened and intimidated. Eventually Vicky had to move from the area for her own safety. Although Brady and Smart had since broken up, they were both seen outside the Fir Tree pub chatting. This would have been seen by the Croxith crew as a mockery to their honour and would have prompted the gang to seek revenge and get their perceived nemesis out of the area, whatever the cost. When the gunman arrived at the pub, Smith and Brady were out of sight. However, two other members of the Strang gang were still outside and within line of fire. In theory, the picture was now complete and the police had their prime suspect. However, in practice, there was still no substantive evidence for the police to prosecute and present in court. Now Merseyside police had to use tactics to build and develop the case. The police used secret listening devices and planted this in one of Sean Mercer's friends, Jamie Yates's home. Jamie Yates lived close to the Fairtree pub. The police were aware that with Yates's house being so close to the scene, he had to have helped Mercer. The device was starting to generate leads, but the police needed to match the high-tech device with good old-fashioned legwork. The police had to track down the witnesses and interview them, but here is where the police were confronted with the disturbing wall of silence. It seemed many witnesses were not willing to sign any form of statements to be used against Mercer for the fear of reprisal from the gangs. People felt afraid, and without the help of the local community, there would be no justice for poor Reese. Despite several tip-offs, it seems many are reluctant to reveal their identities or to sign statements. Detectives say they can protect those who come forward, but not everyone here believes that. This area has seen too many shootings, and with the killer still loose, people are frightened. Frequent appeals by detectives were falling on deaf ears. Detective Patricia Callan. I need more help in the solving of this crime. The answers to who is responsible is within the community. The police decided to take a different approach and they asked Stephen and Melanie Jones to make their own appeals to the press in hopes that this would shame families of the culprits to come forward. The family had no choice but to share their grief with the media. Here are a few appeals from the parents. We're devastated. We've lost our world. Uh, the world's lost a, a good guy. My baby was only 11. <laughs> he didn't deserve this. 
The only reason we're here today, the only reason is because we need help. We need witnesses to come forward. We need the person who killed our son to be caught and brought to justice. And if their parents had any thought about our pain and what we've lost, they'd turn in their son. Or a sister or the auntie or someone must know who it is or they must suspect who it is. As you have just heard, Melanie made a desperate plea to the parents of the murderer. Yet again though, nobody came forward and despite her heartfelt appeal, Mercer was not only getting help and support from his gang and friends, but also from his family. But more on this later. The campaign spread and was drawing support from all over the city, even to Reese's beloved Premiership football team, Everton. The young boy was a dedicated supporter of Everton Football Club and had been a season ticket holder along with his father and brother. Players of the team laid a floral tribute, football boots and football shirts at the scene of the crime and players and fans paid tribute to him in a minutes-long applause at the home game against Blackburn Rovers on the 25th of August. Melanie Stephen and Reese's brother Owen standing in the dugout with their manager David Moyes witnessing the 34,000 fans who attended the game sharing in their grief. After a suggestion from Liverpool Echo columnist Tony Barrett which was supported by many Echo readers. Everton's local rivals, Liverpool FC, agreed to play the beginning of Johnny Todd, a folk song which was the theme tune to 1960s British police drama, Zed Cars. The song that traditionally greeted the arrival of Everton onto the Goodison Park pitch before playing the traditional Liverpool anthem of Jerry and the Pacemakers, You'll Never Walk Alone, ahead of their UEFA Champions League game with Toulouse on the 28th of August. Goodison Park and Anfield are less than a mile apart, separated by the greenery of Stanley Park. The bitter rivalry between the two clubs dating back generations and still continuing to this day. I just want to allow you to hear this from the game to show the unity within the city of Liverpool that this murder had brought. Shot and murdered whilst returning home from playing football. Reese was an avid Everton fan and he loved his club and playing football in equal measure. On pitch side tonight, we welcome Reese's mom, Melanie, Dad, Stephen, older brother, Owen, who are our guests this evening, along with other members of the family in our staff. We are going to play the Zed Cars theme as a mark of our respect 
and in remembrance of Rees, and to demonstrate that all football fans are united in their sadness. The family has said that the thought of Z cars being played at Anfield would have really made Rees smile. In memory of Rees Jones, Z cars. The Liverpool players and staff, Toulouse players and matchday officials all wore black armbands during the game. Phil Neville, who some of you may now know as the England women's football team coach, but at the time was the captain of Everton, made a television appeal to help try and fight for justice. We all here at Everton have families of our own and we cannot comprehend what you're going through. We appeal to anyone with any information to please contact the police. With all this coverage, and despite Melanie and Stephen's best efforts, still no one would come forward and the lack of information was hampering the case and the police were desperate for some first-hand account of Mercer's whereabouts on the night of Reese's murder. They needed someone to betray him. The young thug was very visible all over the Croxith area with an air of arrogance about him. He was seemingly untouchable. Over 2,500 mourners attended young Reese's funeral, which was held in Liverpool Cathedral on the 6th of September 2007. His family issued a public invitation to the city and further afield for well-wishers to attend the service where mourners were requested to wear bright colours or football strips. The procession started with Reese paying one final visit to his beloved Goodison Park as his coffin made the journey to the funeral service. The family, making the pilgrimage to the famous old ground, not to watch football, but to mourn the loss of a brother and a son. As the cortege passed the stadium, hundreds of people lined the streets, many in the blue of Everton shirts, others in Liverpool tops, to pay their respects to the young boy. The hearse paused briefly outside of Goodison and was met with a spontaneous applause from the assembled crowd. Reese's coffin was painted in the blue of Everton and emblazed with the club's crest. The Bishop of Liverpool came out to speak to the family for a few moments before the funeral procession entered the cathedral as the organist played the Everton theme tune, Zed Cars. The opening words were given by Canon Anthony Hawley, 
the acting dean of Liverpool Cathedral, before the mourners sung the first hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful. During the service, Stephen read a poem he had written for his son. Now God wanted a football match and to play it up in heaven. But first he needed players and select his first 11. Georgie Best, Big Brian Labone, the legend Dixie Dean, Alan Ball and Bobby Moore all made it in the team. He needed one more player, someone who would be quick. From up above, he looked down and saw Reese there in his kit. So Reese was taken up above. God took him by the hand to play the game he loved so much, where sponsorship was banned. There is no cheating either, as God is the referee. There is no mega wages, and the transfers, they are all free. The games are live on telly. You don't need to subscribe. The players all stay on their feet because no one takes a dive. So Reese plays now so happily to the angels in the crowd. And every time he hits the net, they roar his name so loud. Have fun, my little blue boy. You're safe in God's care. Till it's time for me to get my boots and join with you up there. Among those giving tributes and readings was Everton player Alan Stubbs, who read the mediation called Walking with Grief. The final hymn was Abide with Me, and following the commendation, Reese's coffin left the cathedral as it had arrived to the Everton theme tune Zed Cars. The cortege then taking Reese the final six miles to his final resting place of Allerton Cemetery, where he now has a marble headstone which has been crafted into the shape of the Everton badge. The detectives had to wait until the new year for a break in the case, however. The bug that had been planted in Associate James Yates's house led the police to some valuable information about the movements of Mercer after the murder. After the shooting, Mercer cycled to the house of a 15-year-old boy known for legal reasons as Boy M. The police managed to track down and questioned Boy M, where he provided critical information. The boy stated that within 30 minutes of the shooting, Mercer had gathered together his cohorts and gang members to dispose of all of the evidence. This initial meeting and plan was all constructed at Boy M's property. James Yates, Nathan Quinn, Melvin Coy and Gary Kays all attended Boy M's home. 
they had to dispose of the bike and the clothing. Mercer was sure that these gang members would not betray his trust. However, Mercer had not factored in that Boy M's mother was not going to keep quiet. From Boy M's house, the gang travelled to where Coy worked, an industrial estate on the outskirts of the city centre, with Kay driving the vehicle. Mercer was stripped and washed in petrol to remove any gun residue, and his clothes were then set on fire, destroying any forensic evidence that may have transferred. By 9pm, Mercer was climbing back into Coy's Four Galaxy for the journey to his Good Shepherd close home in Croxith. Boy M agreed to make a deal with the police that he would provide evidence on the condition that he would receive leniency when it came to sentencing. Although the gang may have destroyed some evidence, the police, on the other hand, were building a timeline following the CCTV evidence and using phone satellite signals to plot the movements of the gang. Nevertheless, finally an anonymous tip-off was reported on the murder weapon. Two guns were finally found after a raid on a property of an associate of Sean Mercer. The find included the gun that murdered Reese Jones. For legal reasons, the associate will be known as Boy X. He described how he took possession of the gun shortly after the murder of Reese. Boy X was granted immunity from prosecution in exchange for his statement and no charges would follow for possession of a firearm or aiding and abetting a criminal. On the 15th of April 2008, Merseyside Police confirmed that 11 people, all aged between 17 and 25, had been arrested in connection with the murder. Six more males of a similar age were arrested the next day in connection with the events on the 22nd of August 2007. One was arrested for murder and the other five for assisting an offender. One of these men had already been charged with possessing a firearm. All six of them were remanded in custody by Liverpool magistrates on the 17th of April 2008. Another man was charged in connection to the case on the 18th of April 2008 and remanded on the same day. The trial of Sean Mercer started on the 2nd of October 2008 at Liverpool Crown Court. Neil Fluitt QC was representing the prosecution and Richard Pratt QC was representing Mercer. The Right Honourable Mr Justice Irwin presiding. Mercer pleaded not guilty to all charges which were levied against him. In court, Mercer and his co-defendants did not acknowledge either Stephen or Melanie Jones and Mercer's behaviour in particular was disrespectful throughout, slumping over the desks, laughing and joking, and throwing paper aeroplanes at his co-defendants. It was reported that you would have believed that the boys had only committed a minor crime such as shoplifting. 
the behaviour and the stance of all the defendants showed no remorse or regret for the life lost or the heartache caused to the family of Rhys Jones. However, Merseyside Police had a bigger problem. Boy M, who I mentioned earlier, a key figure in the case, refused to take the stand and had retracted his statement regarding Mercer and his actions after the murder. The case against Mercer and his gangmates was mainly based around the testimony of witnesses from the local community. The Crown Prosecution Service was anxious that the face-to-face interaction with the gang in court may intimidate the witnesses into changing their statements. Just because there is a previous statement from a witness, it doesn't necessarily mean that these witnesses will stand by and relay their statement out of fear. It was Boy M's mother's time to take the stand and testify. The pressure was particularly acute for Boy M's mum. Her son had refused to testify and take the stand. During his statement, he had told police that Mercer and the gang planned the cover-up from the house. But it appeared that the pleas made by Melanie and Stephen for the parents of anyone involved in the murder of their son had been heard. Boy M's mother stuck to her account, even though it would incriminate her own flesh and blood. She had explained in her own words what she knew regarding her son's involvement. She was to some extent minimising his involvement in the crime, whilst incriminating the others. That, coupled with the testimony of Boy X, telling the court that Mercer had given him the gun was crucial. The prosecution highlighted Sean Mercer's obsession with firearms, showing the drawings of various guns made whilst Mercer was in custody. It was a bizarre insight into his depraved mind. Mercer's mother, Jeanette, was also charged for covering up for her son. Jeanette Mercer had tried to cover up a crucial piece of evidence by lying to the police in a statement when they asked about bicycles her son owned or had access to. Mercer was riding a silver mountain bike when he shot Reese but his mother told the police that he did not own such a bike, saying that he only had a black, orange and white one. However, the police found out that four months earlier, she had taken delivery of a silver mountain bike when it was sent to the family's home following an insurance claim. On the 16th of December 2008, at the end of a nine-week trial, the jury at Liverpool Crown Court found Sean Mercer guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life imprisonment, being ordered to serve a minimum term of 22 years. When sentencing, Mr Justice Irwin addressed Sean Mercer. I quote, Rhys Jones died at your hands. His death was a tragedy for him and for his family. 
a waste of a promising young life. His parents' dignity throughout this process has been deeply impressive to any of us who has seen it. The way they have behaved has been a standing reproach to those in the dock, and particularly to you, Mercer. You killed their son. But it is clear that their composure conceals searing emotions, which we can guess at, but which those of us who have not lost a child can hardly grasp. The impact upon them and upon Reese's brother is enormous. There is only one sentence for murder, namely imprisonment for life, and that is the sentence I shall pass upon you. If you had committed this crime at the age of 18, the age you are today, the starting point set by the statue for this minimum period would be 30 years. As it is, because you were just short of your 17th birthday at the time of the offence, the starting point is 12 years. This offence arose from a stupid, brutal gang conflict which has struck this part of Liverpool. You were caught up in that from a young age, but it is clear you gloried in it. It is wrong to let anyone glorify or romanticise this kind of gang conflict. You are not soldiers. You have no discipline, no training, no honour. You do not command respect. You may think you do, but that is because you cannot tell the difference between respect and fear. You are selfish, shallow criminals, remarkable only by the danger you pose to each other. You were told that Brady and others from Norris Green had been seen on the Croxis Park estate, and you took this as an invasion of your territory, as if you had the right to this territory, or to occupation of it. Or, it may be you saw this as just an opportunity. And so you armed yourself and set off. The CCTV evidence shows you hunting for your intended victims, first behind the fir tree public house, and then coming back round the end of the pub. Then your aggression became alloyed with cowardice. You stopped by that wall and fired at your intended victims from 70 yards across the pub car park, with bystanders all around, and with cars moving across the car park in the moments before you fired. Your first shot nearly struck your intended victims, hitting a metal container about a foot from one of them. They fled as fast as they could. You tracked them and fired twice more, arms extended, aiming shots with murderous intent as the jury has rightly found. Your second shot cut down Rhys Jones. He died because of your brutality and because you're a coward. Rhys Jones's life is now gone. We do not take a life for a life, although even if you were released 
you'll be under license and supervised for as long as you live. Liable to immediate recall to prison if you do anything wrong. However, the proper punishment here will have the effect that you will not emerge from prison, even at the earliest, for a long time. You are 18 now. Then you will be at least on the verge of being a middle-aged man by the time you're released. Other gang members were also sentenced. In January 2009, Yates was sentenced to seven years, to which his response showed his lack of remorse. He said, I quote, All this for some fucking kid. Melvin Coy also got seven years for his part in the cover-up. Dean Kelly was sentenced to four years and Nathan Quinn for two years. Boy M was sentenced to a two-year supervision order. Parents of the gang members, including Mercer's mother and the parents of Yates, were later tried and convicted for perverting the course of justice. Outside court, the Jones family gave the following comments. Finally, justice has been done for Reese. Firstly, we would like to record our enormous gratitude to the Merseyside police officers whose professionalism and perseverance secured this outcome, especially to DCI Kelly and our family liaison officers, Damien Ord and Debbie Ryle. Our sincere thanks also to Neil Fluitt and White and their team, and also to Helen Morris from the CPS. We would also like to take this opportunity to thank our employer Tesco for their understanding during this most difficult time. From the day Reese died, the kindness shown to us by the people of Liverpool has been immeasurable. For this, we will always thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Over the months, we have found strength in the messages of support from many thousands of strangers around the world. For us as a family today, is not the final chapter in this tragedy, but now at least we can begin the challenge of rebuilding our lives. Thank you all very much. On the 28th of October 2009, Yates had his sentence increased to 12 years imprisonment following a referral to the Courts of Appeal by the Solicitor General Vera Berg QC as being too lenient. On the 2nd of November 2009, Mercer stabbed Jake Fari, another inmate apparently having crafted a knife from a pair of tweezers. On the 31st of August 2013, the new Reese Jones Community Centre was opened by ex-Everton manager Joe Royal. The complex consisted of a community centre and a sports pitch. Reese's parents watched on as the £500,000 centre in Langley Close, Croxith Park, near the car park where Reese lost his life. Mercer is now serving his sentence at HMP Franklin Prison in Durham, where fellow inmates include Soham Killer Ian Huntley, Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe, and perpetrator of the crime in episode 10, Michael Adebolajo. The victim in this case lost his life through a tragic incident being caught in the crossfire between two rival gangs. This is the story of Reese Jones. However, the pain caused continues to this day. 
I leave you with the words of his football coach. I know loads of people have said to me, there's nothing you can do, you know, you couldn't have changed anything, and even Steve himself has said it to me, but I just can't help but think it, you know. It, <laughs> if he would have got in it, if he would have got in the car, you know, sorry about this. <laughs> doesn't get any easier, does it? Time helps you sort of cope with it, and... But it's not the fact that Reese has gone or what what happened to Reese. But to me, it, it, it's that vision of Reese, the last thing I've seen of him. You know, that that sort of what haunts me like. Wow, that was tough. So that's it for this week. Please remember, if you enjoy the show, then please subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. If you want to know more, then please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod or look for our Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast. There is also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion, and I'm loving interacting with all of you. I will also be posting information about this week's case on there. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. I usually post pictures on there with regards to victims and perpetrators. Also, if you have any suggestions or constructive feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to pay tribute to Reese this week and play us out to Zed Cars, just like the way his beloved Everton would arrive onto the pitch. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.